Well, friends, as uh, we're continuing through our series through the book of Kings, uh, we've been walking through it line by line, chapter after chapter. Uh, we come again to chapter 18, and in chapter 18, we're going to be confronted again with the same truths that we thought about last week, namely this confrontation between the Lord, who is God, and this God that is reigning in the time, or at least thought to be reigning in the, li- in the lives of the Israelites at the time, Baal, God versus Baal, as it were. The author of this passage is teeing us up to see that there is one God and all other gods are sinking sand. Last week we saw from chapter 17 that this Lord, the Lord could stop the rain, could provide food, could raise the dead, while the so-called God of Baal was silent. He did nothing. This theme of comparisons continues today, only today we will have a kind of pitched battle between the two. This will be more like a boxing match to see who actually is God and who the pretender is. And the audience of this boxing match between these two gods, as it were, is going to be God's people. It's going to be the Israelites. And by extension, guys, you, us, we get to be in the audience, as it were, to see this uh, boxing match that I'm calling it between God and Baal. And this truth, the truth of the fact that God is the only God is going to come uh, pressing upon us. But before that kind of boxing match happens, I want you to slide your eyes down to verse 21. It's a haunting question there. And this question, I think, will tee us up, get us ready for the word. Kind of a good introduction. Elijah comes near to the kind of audience sitting there getting ready to watch the boxing match, as it were. And he says there, how long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. That's the haunting question that will be posed to us amidst this kind of boxing match, as it were. How long will you go on limping between two different opinions about God? If God is God, then follow him. If not, then don't. Stop trying to do both. I assume this morning that nobody in here is tempted to follow Baal. But we are tempted to limp between two different opinions about God, aren't we? We have this God of the American dream and the God of the gospel. The two are not the same. The God of the American dream uses the gospel as something that is used to make our personal stories a little more exciting. Whereas the God of the gospel looks at us from a bloody cross and says, follow me here. Which God will you and I choose to follow? You can't follow them both. Big idea this morning, very clear, the Lord is God. You can see that conclusion there in verse 39. That's where we're going to go. The Lord is God. That's the big idea. You get lost, come back to that idea. But let's go ahead and jump into the narrator, narrator's telling of this true story. Take a look at uh, chapter 18, verse 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. Stop there for a bit. We have to remember going back to chapter 17, verse 1, the Lord was sending judgment upon Israel for the way that Ahab had led Israel to sin against God by going up and taking a a false worship of a false God in Baal. It's been three years now since that judgment, chapter 17, verse 1, and chapter 18, verse 1 and 2. It's been about three years. There's been no rain in the land. Famine has set in, but the Lord was ready to bring an end to that judgment. And so he uses the same guy that he used to signal the beginning of the judgment 
and Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead. An otherwise nobody from Possum Trot, Kentucky, as it were, gone up to the kind of White House to as a messenger to tell them about the one true God as to what he was going to do. The Lord we saw was going to send rain back to the earth. We, that's what we read there in verse 1 and 2. The Lord was going to send rain. He'd been judging the land by not bringing rain. He was going to bring the rain. But he, before he brought this rain, he needed another kind of visit between Elijah and Ahab, the king of Israel at the time. In verse 3, we see that Elijah calls on Obadiah. And it's important to note, this is not the same Obadiah that is a prophet that you read about the book of the Bible. It's a different one. This Obadiah was head of King Ahab's household. Some of you know that the White House has a guy that's called the chief usher, kind of oversees the workings of the house at the White House. Well, this was sort of Obadiah's job. He was sort of like that. And as providence would have it, Obadiah fears the Lord. He doesn't feel bear, doesn't fear Baal. In fact, we learn in verse four that when Ahab's wicked pagan wife Jezebel was out killing the Lord's prophets, Obadiah was secretly hiding about a hundred of the Lord's prophets in a couple caves, bringing them bread and water. So this guy, Obadiah, is a kind of courageous, subversive dude on the inside of Ahab's staff. So Elijah calls on Obadiah, that guy, to have a kind of parlay with Ahab. But before he does, before this parlay between Elijah and Ahab happens, Ahab and Obadiah split up in order to try and find some green grass to save the animals. Ahab seems more interested in saving animals than he does people. But when Obadiah is out looking for some green grass, as he's on his way there, he runs into Elijah. Obadiah, of course, is humbled to see the prophet. He says, is it you, Elijah? And take a look at verse 8. Elijah says back, it is I. Go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he, that's Obadiah, said, how have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? Don't you love the earthiness of this saint, Obadiah? He responds, I think, much like many of us would. Ahab says, or sorry, Elijah says to to uh, Obadiah to go get this meeting. And Obadiah's response is, go tell Ahab you want to talk to him. Seriously, I'll get killed if I do that. And we ask why. Why would Obadiah think that he would get killed just for creating this meeting between Elijah and Ahab? We'll take a look at verse 10. This gives our answer why. As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom. This is Obadiah talking. As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. He's referencing Ahab there. And when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they have not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you. I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And now you say, go tell your Lord. Behold, Elijah is here. He will kill me. So Obadiah is like speaking to uh, Obadiah speaking to Elijah, like, dude, you're a marked man, bro. You're a marked man. If I go telling somebody, especially King Ahab, that I've got you, he's going to kill me. King, Ahab, King Ahab's got dudes looking all over the place for you. And the second I tell him where you are, what's going to happen is, is 
you know, the spirit of the Lord is going to carry you over there, carry you to the Grand Canyon, and you're not going to show up, and he's going to kill me. Elijah reassures Obadiah, get the parlay on, I'm going to show up. So off Obadiah goes. That brings us to verses 17 to 19, where we get this highly anticipated reunion. We can only imagine what it must have been like when these two first saw each other, Ahab and Elijah. Ahab, for the last three plus years, has been hunting Elijah down, but he couldn't find him. Elijah, meanwhile, has been hiding out in a state park being fed by birds. Right? That's what's been going on for the last three years. He, he eventually goes to the capital of Baalism and gets fed miraculously by God, raised a kid from the dead. That's what he's been up to. So when they come together, you know, Elijah's feeling pretty salty about this time, right? He's feeling pretty confident. Standing in front of Ahab. Look at verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and follow the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Now, friends, this little interaction is instructive for our own cultural moment. You have two guys that are looking at the same situation, the famine, the judgment of the famine. They're looking at that, and they're interpreting it in two radically different ways. Ahab thinks Elijah is the problem. Elijah believes Ahab is the problem. And this happens every day in our lives, right? So maybe you're, you can remember when you were kids, or maybe some of you are still kids, right? Your, your parents go away. They come back. The house is a disaster, right? Mom looks at you and says, you've done all of this. And what do you say? No, 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 it wasn't me. It was my brother. He did it, right? I can think about this even a couple weeks ago. I was uh, coaching a baseball game. Umpire makes a close call. Coach goes out. wasn't me. Coach goes out, complains to the umpire, right? The umpire thinks the coach is the problem for bringing all this mess up. The coach thinks it's the umpire for getting the call wrong. On and on it goes. We can think back a couple weeks ago to when the election results came back in. Right, Every newspaper or cable news station pointed fingers as to why things turned out the way they did. Right, the, uh, Some people say, well, it's the, it's the Republicans that are the troublers. It's some Others would say, it's the Democrats that are the troublers. Right, Then in society, they would say, well, it's the religious people that are the troublers. And then the other people would say, no, it's the secular people that are the troublers. You look at the schools, right? And they would say, well, it's the teachers that are the troublers. No, and the teachers would say, no, it's the parents that are the troublers. On and on it goes. Sometimes in your marriage, my husband is the troubler. My kids are the troubler. We all see the problem. It's indisputable, but people look at those troubling situations and come to radically different conclusions. Oftentimes, like Ahab, shifting the blame away from any personal responsibility and on to someone else's responsibility. The reality is, friends, Ahab and Elijah, in this case, cannot both be right. One of them is wrong. And thankfully, we have the divine interpretation of the events. Friends, we are in a better position. This is important. Hear me, guys. We are in a better position than had we been living at this time because we know where the blame ultimately is. We have the text to tell us where it is, right? It's on Ahab's shoulders. As Elijah says, it's his idolatry that led them into this famine. He's the one in his house, Omri. Y'all remember Omri, his dad, has been leading them to follow Baal, to reject the Lord's commandment. All Elijah had been doing for the last three plus years is following the Lord. But that didn't matter to Ahab. 
Ahab was evidently convinced in his own mind that Elijah was the problem, even though he had led Israel into idolatry and judgment. So convinced of his own position that he was willing to try and hunt Elijah down and kill him. So, beloved, you need to know this. No matter how kind you are, no matter how compassionate you might be, no matter how winsome you are, no matter how well-read you are, no matter how loving and merciful and Christ-like you are, no matter how logically consistent you are. Beloved, if you maintain fidelity to the word and stand for biblical principles in a broken world, you and I are going to be seen troublers as of America. That's how we'll be seen. It's always been that way. Faithful, consistent Christianity in every generation and every continent of the earth, they will always be seen as the troublers, no matter how faithful and kind and loving they are. We see that in Christ himself, who is the definition of love. And yet, no matter how forgiving, how patient, how good he was to Pharisees and prostitutes alike, he got murdered. And he's the one that says to us in John 15, 20 and 21, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent. And so just like Ahab didn't know who sent Elijah, so will many of our friends and family and neighbors think that we are the troublers of our neighborhood because we stand on the word of Christ as life and liberty. They don't know who sent Christ. They don't know oftentimes who sent us that are in Christ. As we see here, even if they say they believe, if they then reject the Lord's commands, they do not know the father as father or the son as son. And so they do what they do to you and I, thinking us as troublers on account of Christ's name in you. That's what Jesus said. Assume that's going to happen. You should assume that's going to happen. It's assume that no matter how kind you are, if you're being faithful to the word, you're going to be seen as a troubler. Assume it's going to happen. Don't be surprised if Scripture teaches that the fiery trials that come upon us are standing for righteousness as though something strange were happening. It's understood to be the normal experience for Christians to be seen as troublers. That's normal. We are exiles on the earth because our citizenship, of course, is in heaven. And so when people chastise us, threaten us, fire us from our jobs because we cannot disobey the Lord's commands as lovers of Christ, well then, beloved, count it all joy. When you face trials of different kinds, knowing that this, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The world will always see faithful, consistent, devoted Christianities as troublers. It always has. It always will. Well, back in here to the story. After this little skirmish, we find that Elijah then challenges Ahab, challenges Ahab and all of his prophets of Baal and Asherah to a one-time, kind of prime-time, pay-per-view, heavyweight boxing match. At stake in this match is a clear manifestation of who actually is God and who the pretender is. Baal at this point in Israel's history seems like the unbeaten powerhouse with all the trappings of the heavyweight favorite. He's the culturally acceptable God. He's popular. While the Lord is not very culturally acceptable and he doesn't seem to have a lot of followers at this time. Not many committed followers. All the followers of the Lord of Yahwehism well, that's sort of what the grandparents used to believe. We've progressed beyond that. They are on the wrong side of history, as it were. 
Baalism, that's the new God. He's the stronger, more hip, more popular. He's got more followers. And so let's square them off and see who the real deal is and who the pretender actually is. And so Elijah has called for this heavyweight bout to be played out right in front of all Israel. So he's invited all Israel up there to Mount Carmel to come watch this fight. Right? We can imagine the commentators sitting there watching this fight come to be, right? We can imagine the, the fight comes on, the music's going, dun, 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 right? It's coming up, the banner's going up, Baalism, the other one's the Lord. They're all coming in, right? At the World Cup, you see all this coming, coming. All this is happening. It's coming up on Mount Carmel. Here we go. Pitched moment, right? Anticipation, throngs of Israel surrounded. We see down in verse 22, Elijah says to the throngs of Israel that are coming up, crowded around, he says in verse 22, I, even I only am a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. So it seems like in this moment, Elijah is saying like an announcer would say, in this corner, we have 450 prophets of Baal. They're strong, they're powerful, they're culturally accepted. They've got all the sort of trappings of acceptance in this time. And then over here is Elijah the Tishbite from Possum Trud, Kentucky. All by himself, sitting over there. Once again, Las Vegas is looking on this uh, million to one odds in favor of Baal. But we who are in Christ know that God shows his power through weakness. He shines best in times of darkness. But before the fight begins, Elijah has this jarring, haunting question that I began with. It sets up the whole fight. It frames this whole kind of boxing match. He looks over again at Israel. He's looking at the crowd. We can imagine You know, a boxer in the middle of a ring, looking out to the throngs, he grabs the mic from the guy and says to them, again, verse 21, and Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. I want you to notice, guys, how the crowd responds. Look there in verse 21. You can see it. They did not answer him a word. They knew. He was right. They knew that they had been exposed. Maybe some of you had had a similar uh, experience where you kind of living two different ways, two different lives, kind of following two different gods, and a, a brother and sister in Christ shows up and confronts you and says, brother, sister, listen, you can't keep living like this, man. You can't do this. And you know you'll even give them an answer because you know they're right. That's what's going on. For centuries, Israel had been treating the Lord like one of Solomon's 700 wives. Yet the Lord never left them. He'd been faithful. He delivered them. He covenanted with them. He gave them the law. He gave them leaders. Gave them the land. He promised to protect them and give them peace. Centuries before even, we find the same thing happen. Joshua is confronting the Israelites of the very same things that we read about here. Just before his death, in fact, Joshua spoke the word of the Lord to them. In Joshua 24, 13. Referencing how the Lord sees this, he says, Joshua says, uh, I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Joshua is saying, put away all of this double mindedness, put away your insincerity, put away your hypocrisy and follow the Lord. Joshua goes on to say to them back then, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Here we are again, centuries later, same thing happening. 
And of course, we know centuries after Elijah, Israel will be disciplined again. They'll be exiled. They'll come back in the land and they'll do the same thing. Trying to have two masters, trying to serve two gods. And the question remains, how long will you go on limping between two different opinions about God? So I pose the question for all of us this morning. The Lord seems to have posed it for us as well. The same thing, the same struggle. How long will you go? How long will I go? How long will you go? And trying to have two different opinions about God and serving them both. Stop. Could not what Joshua said to the Israelites so long ago also not be said to us who claim Christ? Haven't we been promised a land that we did not labor? Haven't we been promised a city that we did not build? As we take the Lord's Supper, haven't we eaten the fruit of vineyards that we did not plant? Throngs of Christians have treated Christ in the same way as the Jews of old. This duplicitous, hypocritical, adulterous religion does not escape us, beloved, here in the 21st century. Trying to have the God of the American dream and the God of the gospel does not work. David Wells writes of those that try to do that. He says, those who assure the pollsters of their belief in God's existence may nonetheless consider him less interesting than television. His commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence. His judgments no more awe-inspiring than the evening news. And his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. Indeed, he says, it is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. Another pastor writes that many today want a nice middle-class American Jesus who is fine with nominal devotion. Another author writes today that, quote, everything depends upon our happiness rather than on God's holiness. We want a God that never disagrees with us, but only affirms our every decision, only wants us to be happy and would never call us up to Mount Carmel. Certainly not up to Mount Golgotha. As we go through the rest of this account, beloved, and friends that are here that are not Christians, strive with me to replace Baal for the God of personal comfort and ease your minds, the God that has no uh, regard for discipleship and repentance, but only your personal fulfillment, sort of get that God and make he be represented in the God of Baal, and then let the God who is Christ the Lord be representative of Elijah's God as we go through this, because again, there is no temptation to follow Baal today, but there is a temptation to go on limping between two different opinions of God. The God of the American dream and the God of the gospel. Choose this day whom you will serve. Take a look at verse 23. Elijah has the prophets of Baal choose their bull for sacrifice. Cut it up, lay it on the wood. Verse 24 is key to understanding who kind of wins this boxing match. Elijah says in verse 24, uh, And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. And so how do we know who wins the match, as it were? Whichever God speaks. That's how we know. The God who is, ex the God who is silent is exposed as a lie. He's not really a God. He's just a pretender. The God that speaks, he's the one that's alive, right? He's the one that's real. How do we know that somebody's alive? They talk, right? So in the same way, that's what's going to happen. And the way God will talk in this instance is by putting fire on the sacrifice. And we find that everybody agrees to the rules. 
So they back off. They go to their two corners. They wait for the bell. Prophets of Baal, they go first. They cut up the bull and then ding, ding, on it goes, right? They start doing their thing. They start worshiping. Look at verse 26. And they, this is the prophets of Baal. They called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, oh, Baal, answer us. There was no voice and no one answered. Underline that. This then leads to one of the most entertaining moments in all of the Bible. I love this chapter. If you like sarcastic humor like I do, you're going to love what Elijah says right here. (laughs) With the prophets of Baal crying out saying, please talk, Baal. Please answer us, Baal. Send fire, Baal. It goes on like this for hours, guys, for hours. And at about noon... Elijah starts mocking these dudes. This is great. Look at verse 27. Cry aloud, for he's a God. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. So Elijah's going, you know, maybe, maybe Baal's, maybe, you know, maybe he's just thinking about something. Just, just maybe talk a little louder. Maybe he's out, you know, maybe he's in the bathroom, relieving himself. You know, maybe go knock on the door or something. I don't know. Just talk a little louder. Maybe he's taking a nap. Just talk a little louder. They don't come back. Surely, surely he'll answer you then. You can imagine Israel watching on as all this is happening. Verses 28 and 29, we read these prophets of Baal start cutting themselves. And by the way, you'll notice it says that's their custom. With blood literally oozing everywhere, they keep begging their God to talk, to send the fire on the sacrifice. And it goes again like this for hours. Now we're into the afternoon. And notice the words of the author. Underline this. Look at verse 29. No one answered. Five, six, seven, eight hours gone by. Jumping around. Cutting himself. Begging. Nothing. And then as if that's not sad enough, take a look at what it says in verse 29. No one paid attention. The throngs of the Israelites lost interest in this whole fight. I mean, it's been going on like this for hours. Maybe it's sort of like, Right, you, you go to your kid's soccer game and you drop them off at the soccer game and it's sort of interesting for five, ten minutes, but then it gets boring because it's kids playing soccer and you stop paying attention. You start talking about what you're going to cook this week, right? And then little Johnny's going, Dad, watch me. Like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Right, so, so anyway, right, that's what's happened. They just lost interest. <laughs> and it's at this point that Elijah begins to talk. It's his turn. He comes into the ring. Verse 30 We read that he repairs, this is interesting, he repairs a broken down altar that used to be to the Lord. It's metaphorical, perhaps. He then takes 12 stones, also clearly metaphorical. He takes 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel, which used to be united. But remember, at this point, guys, they're divided. And he builds an altar with these stones. He digs a trench around that altar, and then he stacks wood in the middle of it. He then cuts the bull up and lays it on the wood as a sacrifice. And then what he does next is the absolute boss move of the century. This is so good. I love this chapter. By the way, when I got saved uh, 20-something years ago, this passage was key when I came to faith in Christ. So I just love this passage. Remember this. Remember what was the sign? What was the way that God was going to show that he was the one true God? It was the fire coming down, right? So all right, he's prepared everything. He's got the wood up there. He's got the trench around it. He's got the stones, the 12 stones. And then what he does next, again, this is this great boss move, all right? So uh, Elijah's got four jars of water. Now, remember, a bit, we're in the midst of a famine, right? So not much water to go around. 
So, but apparently Elijah's got some water. He's got four jars of water and he tells his boys, go take those four jars of water and pour them on the sacrifice. This is great, right? And then they come back like, all right, well, like seriously, Elijah, you want to, yeah, yeah. And he's like, listen, do it again. Okay. They do it again. He's like, do it one more time. I can imagine, in my mind, he's smiling. He, go ahead, do it again. 12 jars of water poured on this wood and the sacrifice, making, right, the, uh, making the sacrifice, making the wood kind of moist. And Captain Obvious here, by the way, Captain Obvious, you make something wet, it's hard to burn, right? That's what he's doing. Elijah wants to make it crystal clear that God is God. Verse 35, we read that he, they've put so much water on here. In the midst of this time of famine, famine he's put so much water in there. There's, there's water that's filling up in the trench around that sacrifice, that wooden that sacrifice. And that leads to the moment, a knockout punch. Take a look at verse 36. And at that time of the offering of the oblation, sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O oh Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O oh Lord, answer me. That this people may know that you, O oh Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Okay, pause for just a second. Always remember, guys, that the work of Bible study is not to study the events more than we study the text interpretation of the events, right? The text is God-breathed. It tells us what the events mean. And so this prayer is understood to be this kind of uh, the unlocking of fire for the voice of God. That doesn't mean that if you pray the same way that you're going to get fire to come down from heaven. But it does teach us how to pray. So look at look and see this prayer. Let's see what we can learn about prayer. First, notice that Elijah prays to a specific God. O Lord, O Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. He's not praying to the God of Islam. Right? He's not praying to some individualized God that has been pieced together like a sub-sandwich based upon his likes and dislikes. That's not what he's doing. This is the very same God revealed to us in the Pentateuch, in the law, those first five books of the Bible. This is Yahweh, the Lord. It's a specific God that he's praying to. This revealed himself to us in his word. But second, pay close attention to what he asks for. Two things. Let it be known this day, he says, that you are God in Israel. There's the first piece. And second, related to that, and that I, your, I am your servant and that I have done all these things in your word. So he's wanting it to be clear that this, he's praying to this specific God to be revealed and that he's the servant of that God, that his words as a prophet are true. This is Elijah's burden. He wants God to be seen and known as the only true God and for Baal to be exposed as a sham, as a lie, as an idol. And this is even more clear. Look at verse 37, even more clear there. Answer me, O Lord. That's the covenant name of God. O Yahweh. Answer me, O Lord, that, here's the reason, that this people may know that you, O Lord, covenant name, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. So Elijah prays to a specific God with a specific request that the Lord would be seen for who he is and that God's people would then repent of their idolatry. And so, beloved, when you pray, know that you're praying to a specific God who has revealed himself to you in his word and pray not for your own glory, but for the revelation of his glory in order that more people would turn back, including you and me, and follow him and not go on limping between two opinions. Elijah, you'll notice, did not pray for his own glory. 
No prayers for safety here. He's in a boxing match praying that God alone would be seen and savored and idolatry would be done. Do you pray like that? We need to. More on prayer in a second. What happens? He's prayed. What do we need to have happen, right? We need some fire to come. Verse 38. Remember all Israel, my, I guess my, in my mind, right, they're, they're, the, the, the people are paying more attention to the soccer game or the boxing match at this point, right? There's some change in the game, as it were. Verse 38, he prays, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let no, let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. God spoke. God lives. Meanwhile, Baal, like we thought about last week, is silent. Like all the other pretend gods in the world that are no gods at all. They sit like silent marble statues while God speaks and acts. And again, notice the response of the people. They fall on their faces in reverence and humility. And they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. They repeat it. Friend, this happened. Notice that when this happened, fire immediately comes down. They immediately respond, right, in reverence and humility, saying the Lord, he is God. The same thing, by the way, is going to happen when Christ returns. Same thing. The Lord is going to come. Fire of his glory is going to descend upon the earth and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is the Lord and no other God. Same thing is going to happen. And that way this prefigures that coming moment. And it is at this moment when the fire falls upon the sacrifice. Remember, remember it was all, it had all that water over it. it. It gets burned up. And when the idol of Baal, it's at this moment when the idol of Baal has been given the kind of left hook and, fly, and lies there on the floor, dead as he was before the fire fell, It's at this moment the prophets are seized and judged. And friends, this is right and good. I know this is uncomfortable for us to read, some of us. But it was right and good for God to do. Unlike today, Israel was operating under the old covenant, which specified a judgment like this. Because remember, at this time, church and state, we might say, was aligned. They were to be the beacon of light. Israel was to be the deep beacon of light to the entire world, to represent God on the earth. And they had let these contagious viruses of idolatry come into the nation of Israel, becoming like the people around them and therefore lying to the world about who God is and also creating an environment where these lies could be taught and favored. And so therefore judgment needed to come to make clear who God is and what is true. And so this judgment upholds the righteousness or the justice of God. It it illustrates a, a similar justice that Jesus talked about, friends. And Matthew 25, 41, when Jesus said, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus talked about hell more than anybody. He talked about judgment all the time. And so Baal is exposed and all his prophets lie dead. While Elijah, the Tishbite from Possum Trot, Kentucky, stands over there by himself. 450 prophets dead. Baal seen to be alive. Fire has come down. Rain is about to come down. And it's after this, speaking of that, after this event, fire's come down. Now the boxing match is clear. The Lord wins. He's the Lord. He's the king. 
And after this, Elijah tells Ahab, the king of Israel, tells him to go up and eat and to drink. And as Ahab goes, Elijah prays again. More prayer. Look at verse 42. This, this gets picked up, by the way, in the book of James. We thought about that months ago. Verse 42, it says, he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. Okay, now, Elijah is praying here, evidently. His servant goes back and forth as Elijah is praying to see if rain is coming. Right? Elijah was evidently praying for a fulfillment of the promise that the Lord made back in verse 1. Do you all remember that? Rewind the clock about 35 minutes or so. Remember the Lord said, I'm going to bring the rain again after the judgment. Here we go. He's praying for it. And so Elijah's servant goes back and forth. So his servant comes back and Elijah's praying. He's like, is it raining yet? And the servant's like, no. He's like, all right, go back. And the guy goes back, comes back. What about now? No. Again, no. Three times, seven times. Comes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Back and forth. And then the seventh time, the servant comes back. He's like, there's a little, little small little rain cloud coming over the sea. And I was like, okay, good. Hadn't rained in three and a half years. Here comes the rain. Elijah tells Ahab to prepare his chariot lest the rain get him. Some commentators think that maybe at this point Ahab is beginning to uh, repent. But what, nevertheless, what comes next is something out of a Marvel movie, as if we haven't seen enough. Look at verse 46. The hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Now, this could be a symbolic gesture that the king always follows the prophetic word. doesn't go in front of it. But nevertheless, what we do know is that the battle was the Lord's. And importantly, the people of Israel turned back, at least for now. They saw the air of their ways as they saw the silence of Baal and the voice of God and the falling of fire on the sacrifice. And that leaves us to ask again, beloved, which God will you follow? The false or fake or silent God of your own creation that affirms your every desire or the living God who speaks? Now, some of you might be here uh, and you're skeptical about this. You would understand yourself to be a skeptic of Christianity. And you might say, well, Nathan, listen. If the Lord gave me a sign from fire falling from heaven, well, I'd believe then too. Well, if that's you, friend, I would say two things. First, don't be so sure. Most of the people that saw Christ's miracles didn't believe. Most of them didn't. But don't believe it just because you think if you saw some sign, then you would believe because most didn't at the time of Christ. But second, friend, the Lord has given you a sign that is even greater than fire from heaven which reveals him as the only true God that acts and speaks. And that sign is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's no greater sign than that, that God is alive, that God is real, that God is the only God. There's no greater sign that says the Lord is God than the empty tomb in Jerusalem, that is still empty, by the way, today. The greatest disease on planet Earth, friend, is not cancer, it's not gun violence or heart disease. The greatest enemy on planet Earth is sin. Sin is the author to all of those other evils. And the wages of sin is death. Therefore, don't miss this, friend. Therefore, the God that can overcome sin and death by atoning for sin and then evidencing that atonement by defeating death in resurrection, he then reveals himself as the only true living God. And that, friend, is the God that Christians worship. Jesus Christ was the bull that took the fire from heaven on the cross. 
he paid the penalty for all of our divided hearts. For all those times we worship the God of the American dream over against the God of the gospel. Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life and we have it. I have it. Right. For all those times we did that. Therefore, his life for all that believe his life could make atonement, could make payment for all of our false worship, for all of our idolatry. Jesus was willing to quench the fires from heaven for our sin, licking them all up, licking all of our sin up, just like that water. And that payment is shown to be received for all who repent and believe. It's shown, that sign is shown that the payment is received in the resurrection. And so therefore, friend, the resurrection is the sign par excellence from God. There is no greater sign. And we would agree, right? I think, friend, even you, a skeptical friend, you would agree, wouldn't you? That if Jesus really did rose from the dead, that changes everything. That there really is a living God and his son is Jesus. And if it doesn't, if Jesus doesn't raise from the dead, then he's no different than any other prophet that stayed dead. But if he rose, then he has given us the greater sign of all that God is alive and at work in the world. And friend, the reality is, is that Jesus rose and made public appearances. This is not something like those false religions where all the revelation comes in private. Made public appearance, even appearing to some 500 people who were witnesses at the time of the writing of the New Testament. They were public witnesses of the resurrection that were willing to lose everything and be tortured for what they saw. And most significantly, since Christianity was hated by the Jewish and Roman establishment of the day, all the establishment had to do to stop the claim of the Christians that they hated was simply go show the Christians, open up the tomb and say, there he is. But they couldn't because he wasn't there. That's why I say the empty tomb in Jerusalem speaks louder than any other sign so if you're looking for a sign from God that he is the Lord and king, then look no further than the resurrection where Christ shows his atonement as clear as sin for all those that believe. And so, friend, repent of your idolatry. Come to believe on Christ as Lord and king and enter into a life eternal with him and follow him alone. Don't follow anyone else. And for those of us that have done that, those of us that are trusting in Christ alone for salvation, that believe that resurrection and are hoping in it. I want to leave you with this. Christian, look again at the differences in the worship of the prophets of Baal and the worship of Elijah. Notice the difference. The prophets of Baal moaned and wailed for hours. Their custom was to cut themselves in order to have the blessing of their God. In other words, their religion demanded they be really religious And then maybe they would earn the favor of their God in order to get his blessing. That's true of every religion today, except Christianity. Religion today, even people that don't take the name of formalized Christian religion, you've got to worship, you've got to believe, you've got to affirm everything that they affirm, and the second you don't, they cancel you. You've got to be really religious for whatever the religion is, and then you get the blessing. And if you don't get it right, you just get marked off. But it was nothing more. Listen, it was nothing more than the faith of Elijah as evidence in prayer that led to the blessing of fire and rain. Faith in the one true God was enough to access everything that he needed. And so it is for you, Christian. It is not your devotional plan. It is not your church attendance. It is not how much money you give the church. None of that. It is Christ, him crucified, resurrected, ascended, and soon returning. That's your hope. All of your blessing is in him. 
You trust him. Your faith is in him. It's not in your works to get the blessing. It's in him. Totally, fully. Christ is the true king of heaven and earth. He paid for all of our hypocrisy. He paid for all of our divided love. paid for all of our false worship and idolatry. And he did it when he received those fires from heaven on the cross. And so, beloved, you have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer you that lives, but Christ who lives in you. And the, li- and the life that you have in the flesh, you and I, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself up for you. You live by faith, not by works. That works is drawn out of the faith, right? And so as we go about this Thanksgiving week, let me implore us, Restoration Church, to be thankful for the fact that it is not our religiosity that saves or sanctifies us. You're sitting at that Thanksgiving table. Let it be said of you, Christian, when they ask what you're thankful for, you say, Jesus, I'm crucified and resurrected. He's my only hope. He's all I have. He's given me everything. It is Christ that has done and is doing and will do it all. Our work, as it were, is to trust him as Lord and King. Do not go on vacillating between two different opinions about God, but serving him and him alone. To believe that there is no treasure on earth that compares to the wonder of his grace and mercy. To believe that you don't need to earn his favor since you can't. You already have it all in Christ. And to be thankful for the gospel that has been secured, secured for you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places by grace through faith in Christ alone. And so say, beloved, with the Israelites of old, Restoration Church, may we say, the Lord is God, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. And then may we go about our week, not limping between two different opinions, but following Christ as King and Lord, no other. And beloved, do this knowing that you may be seen as a troubler in the world. But the God who lives and speaks is yours. He's your father. You're his son, his daughter. He's ruling over all things. All the other gods remain silent like marble statues. And he speaks. He speaks through his word. He speaks through his creation. He speaks through you as you testify to his grace and mercy. And soon enough, beloved, we will see him and the fire of his glory coming down out of heaven to judge the false prophets of the earth and establish a home with us here. That day is coming. For behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with us and we will be his people and God himself will be our God and he will wipe away. How many tears? All of them. Every tear uh, from our eyes and death will be no more. And there, in that Emmanuel's land, there will be no more struggle with a divided heart. Until he comes, though, may he find us worshiping and waiting, saying with the Jews of old, the Lord is God. The Lord is God. And there is no other. We agree, God, that we can so easily go on limping between two different opinions about you. Forgive us, Lord, for where we do that. And teach us to say to the Jews of old in that moment, the Lord is God. Teach us to be, at least in this instance, like Elijah, that prayed, trusted you, and 
He's willing to go up on Mount Carmel and face all of the prophets of Baal and all of the kingship of Ahab. Teach us to be the kinds of people that say that we will do that because I can do no other. God is God. His Son is Christ. Where else would we go? Teach us to be people like that, that are courageous, convictional, for Christ, who is the Lord and King over all the earth. All authority is His. May we trust that and live that way and graciously commend others towards that end. And Father, wherever it is we are uh, denounced as troublers, may we be reminded of Elijah. More than that, may we be reminded of our Lord and Savior, the true King, Christ the Lord, who told us that this would happen. And even more than that, that it happened to him. So we love you. We pray that we would give ourselves to you. And we thank you that there's more grace in you than there is sin in us. Ready us now, Lord, as we remember that in the taking of the Lord's Supper. We ask it in your name.